0: Well, we talked about this a little bit on the show a few weeks ago, the idea of fishing licenses and the quota system when it comes to BC's West Coast and commercial fisheries and the difficulties in getting some of the information or most of the information and why some of the communities, particularly on the coast, say they're missing out on a lot of that industry and they would like something done. Well, my next guest has been leading research into this, into the history of of fishing licenses and quota systems on the West Coast. Jennifer Silver is an associate professor in the Department of Geography, Environment and Geomatics at the University of Guelph, uh, but we've reached her on Vancouver Island. Jennifer Silver, thank you so much for joining us. Hi,
1: Jill. Thanks for having me on. It's really great to uh, to get to have the opportunity to chat with you about this, and I'm very happy to be on Vancouver Island
0: at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And t- tell us a little bit about what you've been researching uh, specifically for the past year.
1: Yeah, um, so like you just mentioned, um, fisheries are, are really important to coastal communities and to, to people in B.C., including Indigenous peoples. Um, and so this is a topic, this question of how fisheries are managed and the ways in which um, those opportunities to go fishing are allocated in the, in the commercial fishery is something that I and a lot of researchers have been interested in um, over the last 15 years, at least, if not longer. And so, what I decided to do was really just sort of dig into publicly available information um, that's out there in the form of reports, and in the form of what um, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, who are the federal agency responsible for managing fisheries, had out there. Um, And there is, you know, there are reports that talk about how much it costs to buy different licenses and and their sort of valuation. And and there is information that has basic um, sort of license codes connected to those who hold them. But beyond that, it was it was been difficult to kind of find more um so that's that's what i've been trying to track down and then trying to make sense of that over the last year
0: and difficult in that is it fisheries and oceans that has the information or doesn't share it or is it difficult to find even if somebody has all of the information
1: so difficult in that i've been relying on publicly available sources and so um From what I'm able to see online, again, I have the numbers and the names, but beyond that, for example, um, how often a particular type of license or a single license is leased or sold, that that type of information is difficult to find. And in fact, um, not made publicly available, that would be tracked internally by DFO. And then another piece of information um, is around um, the allocation of quota. So quota essentially grants rights to um, harvesters to Harvest a particular portion of a total allowable catch for a year that DFO sets, and those are not made um, readily available either. And in fact, you know, if an individual is allocated a certain proportion of total uh, of of the quota. Um, in some ways, that's seen as proprietary business information, um, and, and that's one of the reasons that DFO
0: um, at this time doesn't make it available. Uh, it seems like it's been kind of, it's not a secret for people to know. I think if you asked people that have any any knowledge of the industry, who owns the licenses or who's the biggest player, they, the answer would be Jim Pattison Enterprises. That's been out there. Did you find that in your research?
1: Yes. Yep. Um, And that's one thing that I have been able to do, basic, simple counts of license holdings. Um, And in fact, there are only a few, I would say, um, 10 to 15 holders that have um, over 50 licenses. And Patterson um, and, and the company that they own, which is Canfisco, which is the largest processing company in B.C., um, certainly have uh, a pretty significant holding hundreds of licenses and they've and they've acknowledged this in on the public record themselves in in um, parliamentary study on the topic that's been going on in the last winter um, and this is you know this is an important part of their business operation right to su- supply the the product that they need to meet their export um, commitments uh, and so you know there are many um, People who, who understand that and, and sort of see that as part of the business of fishing, but there are questions around how that might be better regulated um, by DFO or how there might be arrangements in place that ensure sort of better sharing of, of benefits and revenue among, among harvesters and among the larger companies.
0: Uh, Because is the concern then that it's almost that if somebody is in that position and they're, they're purchasing all of the licenses and and the quota uh, it is then it's where there might be somebody in a smaller community. There might be even be a smaller company that wants to get into the, the game, but can't because there's simply, there's no more licenses left.
1: That's right. So there's a limited number of licenses for all important commercial fisheries in BC. And that's been the case for several decades now. And as, as folks retire or as, Licenses are um, sometimes bought back by the DFO that the number of licenses can actually decrease. So this is a really critical question that you've raised here around the, the sort of balance between ensuring that those um, larger companies that are supplying large um, volumes of seafood have access to the supply that they need while there are still opportunities for um young and new harvesters and harvesters in more remote coastal communities to stay active in the fishery. And this is really important and and actually one of the critical reasons why I I and, and other sort of advocacy organizations and nonprofit organizations are raising this is because in fact, a 2018 study by the Canadian Council of Professional Fish Harvesters shows that 42% of those who identified in B.C. as fishermen or fisherwoman are over the age of 54, and actually only 15% are 15 to 29. So in terms of regeneration and opportunities for young harvesters to enter this sector, it is a critical question of how we um, regulate, better regulate and better monitor um, and make good decisions about the, the license and coil market.
0: Uh, Does cost come in, though? Because these licenses aren't cheap. We're talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's not as though there's this huge number of of small uh, mom-and-pop operations or individuals who would even be able to do that.
1: That's right. So um, when you have a market for a a good that's valuable, um, as we do in the case of licenses and quota, and there are a limited number of them, um, price can increase and has increased um, over the last several decades. So yes, so... So there, this is one thing that is um, uh, readily reported on. And so a single license for salmon, for different types of salmon can be in the um, tens of thousands to even hundreds of thousands of dollar range. And there are um, millions of dollars of quota transactions. So that is leasing and trading of quota um, that go on annually. Um, and so if you're a new entrant trying to get into into the industry, it can be very expensive. And so what you may decide to do is instead of uh, purchasing your own license is leasing um, a license from a larger company or from another entity that has, has amassed a portfolio of licenses and is willing to lease that to you um, so that you can fish on it for the year.
0: Which uh, sounds like it's a good solution. But I mean, the risk there is also if you lease a license from somebody, you then have to catch a certain amount you have to reach your quota or you're going to lose money.
1: That's right yep and so part of the lease agreements um, and this is a, this is a point that um, came up in the parliamentary study that I mentioned um, that has been going on around this issue over the last winter is that sometimes these lease arrangements are not um, you know the terms of those agreements are not made publicly available so different harvesters are entering entering into different lease arrangements where they might be committing themselves to, to um, selling the fish that they, that they catch back to that license holder. And they may have to lock into a particular price that at the end of the season doesn't make as much economic sense, say the market has changed um, the price, or you know, it, um, it was harder to, or more expensive to catch those fish, that, that harvesters can get locked into a, a price squeeze situation.
0: Uh, you also touch on the fact that it, there's no uh, regulation on who owns the licenses, who purchases them. It could be somebody that has nothing to do with fishing and it's a, it's a, considered an asset. Uh, d- does your research show or do you think that should change?
1: Yeah, so this is one area where, again, since I've been relying on publicly available, inf- available information, I have hit walls. And so sometimes... If you remember that I mentioned that I can I can see um, individual or entity names that are associated with particular license um, codes or license, a single license, and sometimes those will be um, numbered companies. And so unless you do individual sort of access to information requests on individual companies, which is not something I've gone down that path at this stage, that it's difficult to know who, who exactly are um, behind those companies, what their business interests um, are and where the, where the financing is coming from. And so this is one area where I think that there could be a lot more transparency, certainly in other jur- jurisdictions, even um, in, the, in the U.S. Um, for example, uh, in some fisheries, if you are registering a license or, or quota, You have to um, um, list and, you know, basically your business interests and provide information on the nature of your of your business background or the background of your business. And so there could be more data collected about this and more transparency around that. Um, And it's really within the purview of of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to to do that monitoring and to make that information more transparent.
0: So where does your research go from here? What do you do next? (laughs)
1: Um, it's a great question. I think so I, I'm working on publishing some of the initial results that, that, that show sort of the um, portfolios of licenses that are held. I won't necessarily I'm not interested in sort of naming every single name. I, again, I think you're right that some of the largest entities and license holders are well known on the coast, but rather just showing what types of what sizes of, of portfolio holdings are there. Some of them are very large. There are many more that are quite small and what combinations of licenses are in them. And eventually, I'd like to, to your question earlier of sort of how much it costs to get into the sector or to sort of um, have a viable fishing business, I'd like to look at how much some of these um, portfolios cost. You know, that is, if there are 10 licenses of a few different types in a portfolio, how much would, what would the value of those portfolios be? Just to provide more of a sort of sense for the the economic value of these valuable, um, as, you, as you said, the licenses and quoted themselves are assets.
0: All right. Well, we'll talk to you again, I'm sure, uh, as the research continues. Uh, but we'll leave it there for today. Mm. Jennifer Silver, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Mm. Okay, thanks, Jill. Bye-bye. Well, if you live in Metro Vancouver, you likely know it can be difficult to find a rental. There are also a lot of rules around short-term rentals and what can and can't be rented out. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about this and about a particular motion at Vancouver City Council is Councillor Pete Fry. Uh Pete, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, So, there's been a bit of controversy over loosening uh, rental rules when it comes to developers, and this goes back to a motion that you first brought forward, uh, allowing or looking at the idea of allowing temporary hotel leases in new market rental buildings. So, what exactly was your motion?
2: Yeah, and there's there's a little bit of a timeline difference, uh, actually. So, what what's happened is this goes back to a couple of years ago to the previous council and. uh, a couple of developments by ANI called Level had started operating illegal short-term rentals in buildings that were approved under the pretense of being purpose-built rental. And so they were fined, and apparently uh, that government struck some sort of deal with them that has allowed them to legitimize uh, some of those purpose-built rentals as, uh, as short-term rental now after the fact. So the motion that I've put forward is actually... Not uh, to do with that per se, this isn't a retroactive approach. This is using what's, uh, and it's it's less of a short-term rental, it's more of a, of a micro-hotel kind of a concept, a tech hotel. So the idea is, and this is basically recognizing that the modern travelers now kind of like uh, a different experience. They want to live like a local. They want uh, an opportunity to have an apartment with a laundry, with a kitchen where they can come in a couple of bedrooms and have their families there. And that's led to the surge in popularity of, of operators like Airbnb, which of course confound our existing rental stock because we get individual owners turning around and, and renting out places that could be uh, could be homes for for long-term renters and instead turning them into short-term rental properties. So with this new tech hotel model, what's been going on is basically uh, they'll come to a developer and say, "We'd like to to pre-lease two floors of your." future purpose built rental that you're about to try and secure funding for and we'll secure a master lease for ten years, fifteen years and we and you can take that to the bank. Now what this what this means in actuality is right now the city of Vancouver is trying to incentivize purpose built rentals by giving DCL waivers. So DCLs are developer cost levies. And these are the things that cost that fund roads and infrastructure and parks and playgrounds and daycares and housing. And so we're actually giving 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 those away right now to the tune of a million, $2 million a project so the developers will build purpose-built rental. And those purpose-built rentals they're building are coming in at market rates. So we're subsidizing market rentals. And we're talking, when I say market, we're talking $1,800, $1,900 for a bachelor apartment. So the pretense that I'm exploring, and we know that we've run out of hotel rooms. We have a severe hotel shortage. We know that the hotel sector is mostly at the high end of the market, and we need some mid-range offerings. And we need to take some of the steam out of these short-term rental operators that are that are basically essentially just peer-to-peer operators, and they're not really regulatory compliant often. And uh, this is an opportunity to look at how we might be able to leverage the, the, the market need and use that to, to build affordable housing.
0: Right so when you or talk
2: about market housing
0: when you talk about these the micro hotel suites though I mean the, these are essentially quite similar to an Airbnb unit and it's the same client somebody that would be coming into town for a short term or a short amount of time or maybe even a month or two and renting these place it's the same person that would in fact be staying at an Airbnb so uh, you can That's see why exactly right. right why some would say well, it's a bit of a double standard to say it's okay for developers to operate Airbnbs uh, but not private citizens.
2: Well, I think the big difference, and I think this is where where uh, the two different issues are getting conflated, is one is an actual like what I'm proposing is an actual hotel operation where they're paying commercial taxes, not residential taxes. Airbnb operators are paying residential taxes, and the difference is significant. On a on a class one residential, you pay about two dollars and fifty cents on a thousand of assessed value. On a class six business, you'd pay about nine dollars and twenty five cents thousand dollars of assessed value so there's a big difference right there and I think also using this sort of corporate model and it's not necessarily through developers I can appreciate that level is operated by a developer but there's a lot of these tech hotels that are actually operating by purpose purpose designed companies that do this for an exclusive offering and they they're branded and they and they're essentially no different than a hotel in fact Marriott is now in this kind of business so the, the, there's a big difference in, in 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 who's providing the rooms. It's not so much who's using the rooms; it's who's providing the rooms. So we're talking the difference between an underregulated peer-to-peer model that pays residential taxes and you know, is essentially abusing our residential tax system, and uh, and then a, and a corporation that's paying commercial taxes and that has a, a you know a more regulatory compliant environment.
0: Is part of this. Uh, also, though, because it would be easier to regulate and make sure uh, that here's a developer that's playing by the rules, whereas it's tougher to enforce and to make sure people, uh, private citizens, are doing that.
2: Well, that's absolutely the case. So we see, you know, we have there's a bunch of Airbnb short-term rental watchdogs out on social media who are constantly highlighting folks who are who are defrauding the system. We have people who are are, are listing their Vancouver apartments. As West Vancouver, so that they can skirt around the 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 um, Airbnb regulations that the city of Vancouver has placed. And through our bylaws, uh, we have people who are adding fake fake license numbers, people who are uh, using fake IDs. It's it, it's it's a complicated issue when we have a bunch of uh, essentially private citizens offering a commercial service through through residents. And so, yeah, a corporation is. In theory, you're going to be more regulatory compliant.
0: But so how is that any or, or much different than, uh, than renting out long term? It's still renting out to another person, uh, renting out some, uh, your property.
2: Sorry, I'm, I'm not quite following you. I mean, I think like if, so if it's the, a short term
0: rental, it's considered a commercial operation, but it's not if it's a long term rental.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: But it's not really but that different. It's, it's still renting out a space to another person.
2: Well, it's different in the terms of of the kind of impacts it has on our housing stock. It's different in the terms of the, of the kind of money that they're making. Uh, they're essentially operating it as as a business that uh, that would make four to five times as much as it would as just a regular rental. And I think therein lies a pretty significant difference.
0: Uh, do you think that some of the the backlash, or some of the, the people, perhaps calling this a, a bit of a double standard, is because of Ani's background, and because Ani has been in the news before? Uh, they've they've been they were caught doing this, and then this deal was reached in that, that because it's uh, Ani that's the, the company.
2: Uh, to be honest, there hasn't been a huge amount of backlash on this. I mean, so far, but I think a lot most people are a little unclear about the concept. Uh, but I've spoken to a number of developers who would love to see this opportunity to build rental and and not necessarily through the DCL waiver program that we do right now.
0: So where does it go from here? Where where does the motion stand, or what happens at council now?
2: Well, we uh, this this will be introduced at council on Tuesday, and then we'll have uh, speakers and debate and decision likely on the Wednesday. And you know we'll see where it goes. The recommendation or the the, the motion is essentially look, asking staff to look at how we might make this work, and and what kind of you know I mean really we want to we want to tease out what kind of formulas that we use to 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 achieve the kind of results we want to do. Now I should point out that throughout the states where this is being done, uh, it's successfully being used to build rental housing. So in Philadelphia they've bought they've built 500 units and leveraged those to to build new rental housing. In California, they're using them to build low-income housing. So there's a real opportunity here to actually achieve some results by leveraging the market incentives rather than leveraging the public purse incentives. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about building new buildings. So this is developing new buildings. This isn't taking existing supply and removing it for a a single owner to to benefit for a short-term rental. This is talking about building new supply and using this as an incentive tool to get there.
0: All right. We'll have to leave it there. Pete Fry, always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Nice to talk to you, Jill.
0: Bye. Well, if you've ever given much thought to the Royal BC Museum, now is your time to speak up. You might not know. It holds the world's largest collection of BC heritage, and the government wants to get some ideas from you on how to improve it, how to change it. And joining me on the line to talk a little bit more about this is Minister of Tourism, Arts and Culture in BC, Lisa Baer. Minister, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thank you for having me on your show. So, what exactly are you looking for from the public when it comes to the Royal BC uh, Museum?
3: Well, the museum is a provincial treasure. It's the People's Museum, it belongs to everyone in British Columbia. So, this is uh, the people's chance to share their thoughts and uh, input in what they want to see from a modern museum.
0: And what kinds of things are you looking for then, as far as is it suggestions or what what would you what types of suggestions are you looking for
3: well there's so many opportunities, and we really want to hear from the public what what they want uh, i 'm really looking for ways that we can bring the museum uh, into all communities across the province and ways that we can share their stories. So that can mean everything from, you know, virtual reality and digital technology to learning spaces, um, shared, uh, you know, shared spaces for repatriation, for uh, classrooms. There's there's so many opportunities.
0: Are there things missing right now, do you think, from the Royal BC Museum?
3: Well, we have more than 7 million artifacts in the museum and, you know, less than 2% of that can ever be shown, uh, you know, at one time. It's there's. So much opportunity to share the treasures that we have uh, which currently are all stored you know in in vaults below sea level um, and so that's one of the reasons why we're looking at modernizing to ensure that we're uh, creating a new safe modern seismically sound space but also giving the ability to share so many of the treasures that we have below it's not really known that We have the Douglas Treaty. We have the largest collection of Emily Carves, Um, you know, just countless, countless artifacts that people never get to see.
0: Yeah, it does seem a shame that they're tucked away underground.
3: It does. And that's one of the reasons why I'd like to get some of the uh, artifacts out in communities as well. One of the visions I see with modernization is actually taking uh, some of the pieces that we have in the museums and bringing them back to communities and showing them. Um, you know, or highlighting them, whether it be through digital technology or, or um, you know, interactive classroom learnings, but to actually get these pieces out into the uh, the hands of the public who they belong to.
0: So is it something as simple as finding a bigger location or a bigger venue and moving stuff up and into that? Or like you said, maybe taking them on the road on trips and into smaller venues?
3: It's, it's, there's, we're going to uh, go through the entire process right now and that's part of what we want to hear from people is what is it that they'd like to see? Is it just, you know, uh, a larger building that has more capacity? Would they like to have more interaction within the museum? Would they like to see it in their community? These are the great
0: questions that people can uh, weigh in on as they share their thoughts with us. And what about the the stories that it tells in general as well? Do you think is there a good balance in that it tells both the, the good stories of our past as well as as perhaps mistakes that were made and, and parts of our past that that should never be repeated?
3: Absolutely, um, the Royal BC Museum is a world leader in repatriation. Uh, The work they're doing, um, people from all across the globe are coming uh, to learn from what we're doing here in D.C. So examples like that are are a perfect example of reconciliation and learning from past mistakes and ensuring that uh, culturally sensitive belongings that are at the museum currently that shouldn't be there, that need to be returned to communities, that work is
0: happening. So there could technically uh, or potentially be hundreds of exhibits in storage as well that would be better off repatriated. Yes, there's,
3: there's, I believe, around 600 pieces that we're currently looking at repatriation right now, um, repatriating right now into communities. This, this is long, difficult work and there's so many lessons that are learned each time we go through it but as i've said the royal bc museum is is a world leader in this work and is is very committed to doing this
0: and what's leading uh, the charge now as far as uh, these these things have been underground and have been stored away uh, for for quite some time so what's what's sparked the change now well, this is a perfect time to do it. The, you know, the museum hasn't had uh,
3: a significant investment since 1967. Uh, you know, It has seismic issues, accessibility. Uh, it doesn't meet uh, today's accessibility standards. Uh, it absolutely needs a modernization. And we have a government that's completely committed to arts and culture and preserving BC's heritage.
0: And that's exactly what we're doing. So if there was a major earthquake, or maybe even not a major earthquake, but an earthquake could wipe this stuff out. Exactly. That's one of the concerns. Um, you
3: know, you look at the fire in Brazil or, or in uh, Paris at, uh, at the Notre Dame. The, you know, we need to make sure that we're taking every effort to protect uh,
0: the people's treasures of British Columbia. It's our shared history. We need to protect it. What kind of cost are we looking at as far as uh, this this whole process leading to a new uh, Royal BC Museum? So that's work we're doing right now. We're uh,
3: working on a business case to see what that looks like. Um, You know, it will depend on whether it's uh, a brand new build or... Or modernizing the building that's already there; these are all options that are are being looked at as we speak. And we'll have lots more to talk about. Uh, you know, this is going to be a lengthy process. Uh, we're we're definitely trying to um, complete it as quickly as possible uh, because we really are, are committed to developing a, a um, you know a modern museum for British Columbia.
0: But uh, we'll have lots more opportunity to talk about uh, the future of it as we move forward. All right. So we'll leave it there. Minister Baer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jill.